more than anything else that I've seen in the in working with organizations and people in the past 55 years of trying to help people resolve conflict there. I don't think there is any single thing that will do more good than being able to better manage your own defensiveness. Because when people get defensive, it's like throwing blood and water to a shark. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, if I look through all the topics we've covered on the podcast this year, and there have been multitudes of topics, I feel like most of them seem to fall into three main buckets. Bucket number one, how storytelling has changed in a year where we've all needed to take a dive into the digital deep end. Number two, how to lead or negotiate with certainty when we don't have all the answers and it doesn't look like those answers are coming anytime soon. And number three, how to communicate and collaborate with the people we know or meet who have radically different opinions to our own. And hasn't that just pretty much been the story of 2020? You know, even though we never set out to design this podcast around current events, that's just not how we plan or or our process of planning. Somehow, the right guest always seems to appear at exactly the right moment in time. And so it is with today's episode. Today, we are going to jump into the last of those three buckets, radical collaboration. Now, what is radical collaboration? Radical collaboration is the ability to hear both sides of an argument with curiosity and empathy and, and this is the pivotal part, an intention to resolve rather than an intention to just beat the other person down with the surely obvious logic of our own position. And I know I, for one, am guilty of that on many an occasion. Or, and this is the terrifying truth of where we find ourselves at the moment, the decision to not show up at all in the arena of debate and simply retreat further back behind our boundaries, whether those boundaries are global, national, political, or digital. And my next guest, he is no stranger to the arena. Jim Tam is a former judge for the state of California, a role which enabled him to witness conflict unfold, resolve, and of course, on many an occasion, stay unresolved over the course of two decades and more than 1,000 disputes. I mean, can you imagine how much you would learn about conflict resolution, about human communication over the course of 1,000 disputes? His most recent book, Radical Collaboration, co-authored with Ron Luyer, was on Amazon's top seller list for most of the past nine years. He is a former law professor and currently on the faculty of the International Management Program of the Stockholm School of Economics, the Management Education Program at NASA, and the Wahlberg Institute in Sweden. And as well as all of that, he is also a dedicated grandfather, which we'll get into more later. In this episode, we dive into why now is not a normal time. And why now more than ever, we need to be paying attention to our triggers, those hardwired responses, you know, the ones that come up within us that we can barely prevent ourselves from doing when things don't go our way. How to go into an empathetic space 
why role swapping and learning to fight for the other side is key to becoming a master collaborator. And, and I can't emphasize this one enough, that skill, that tool, the ability to be able to go into a conversation or a conflict and be able to put the hat on of the other party and describe to them why their argument has merit, what you can see in their argument. That one thing has changed the course of more negotiations and moments of conflict resolution than, than I can think of in my career and life in general. The vital role of collaborative intention and why stating your intent to collaborate at the beginning of any negotiation can turn the whole thing around. Becoming aware of your answer to this simple question. When someone makes a mistake, do you get curious or furious? Simple question, massive, massive piece of feedback. And finally, and probably the most powerfully, how to identify which of the three faces of fear and those three faces are being or being seen to be unlikable, insignificant, or incompetent, are currently running your life. Now, this one seriously is a game changer for me. And what I want you to reflect on most within this episode is this point. What's your primary fear? What's the real trigger in those moments where you fight, freeze, or run when the going gets tough or when the conversations get hard? What's the number one story that kicks you into furious when we know that all solutions live in a place of staying curious? Is it that they might not like you if they knew the truth or that your voice isn't important enough to be heard or that eventually everyone will find out that you're actually just an imposter who's surely not meant to be here? Figure that out, name it, learn to recognize it the moment it kicks in and that is the biggest shortcut I know to the land of radical collaboration and radical results. So on that note, I will leave you with the sage words and extraordinary insights from a career on the front line of conflict, the incredible Jim Tan. Welcome to the podcast, Jim Town. Thank you, Julie. It's good to be here. It's, it's, great to, it's great to have you on. I want to just kick off. Usually the first question that I ask is, what's the most influential idea you've heard recently? And I just, I just have this feeling at the moment, just in the past kind of couple of weeks, that what we're struggling with right now isn't necessarily the amount of ideas that we have access to. It's how we interpret those ideas and how we're internalizing those ideas and trying to make sense of all the information and ideas that are suddenly coming at us. And I know you had, you mentioned to me previously, you had a really interesting conversation with your grandchildren recently. So I'm going to start there. Talk to me about <laughs> okay. that. I was thinking back on my life and I'm, you know, towards the end of mine, I'm in my seventies. I was realizing what an unusual time this is in my life. I mean, we've got uh, in the United States, we've got, you know, horrible problems with the virus. We're more politically fragmented than we've ever been in my lifetime. Uh, there's more political problems. We have racial issues. The economy has just gone into the toilet. Kids aren't going to school. They can't be with their friends, you know. And I just wanted my grandkids to have a sense of how unusual this was, that this is not this is not a normal time. This is something that they should be paying attention to, to remember how they're feeling about this time um, and put it in perspective for the rest of their lives. Uh, I had some some conversations with my grandmother um, before she passed away 20 
25 years ago, about when she was a child. And she was talking about when the Wright brothers were flying and, uh, you know, and, and she didn't realize the perspective of that time, what, what, that, what the impact of that time was on her in her life until looking back on it much later in life. You know, she went from the, from the Wright brothers to the moon landing. And I wanted my kids to, uh, my grandkids to pay attention to this, know what they're feeling, know what's going on in their life right now. And so it was, it was an interesting conversation. And what did they? What did they say? What, so you're talking about putting it, just actually spending a moment to pay close attention to where you're at right now, how you're feeling, what's going yeah. on for you, and then put it into perspective. Of this is a highly unusual time, and it won't always yeah. be like this. What What did they come back with? Well, they could tell that there was a lot of anxiety among their the adults that they connect with. Uh, anxiety, both economically, racially. So they're picking up that anxiety. Uh, they're also acutely aware that how isolated they are. I mean, they've been at home. They, they're basically living in a bubble away from their friends. Now they, they all have their smartphones and, and they have uh, Zoom calls and, and Skype calls and all that kind of stuff. But it's not the same thing of, you know, as saying to your friend, yeah, I'll be over, I'll spend the night tonight, that kind of stuff. I think that they had not realized the level of anxiety that they were noticing among the adults and they had not realized how isolated they were feeling. They were frustrated, but they hadn't really figured out why. And I think it was that that feeling of isolation and uh, powerlessness about doing anything about it. And to just be to be aware of that, put it into into context. Did you have a, a piece of advice for them? Oh. Did you guide them in a particular direction? Not after that conversation. I, I I do have a lot of advice for them and, and oftentimes they'll say, oh, you know, okay, Papa, you know, <laughs> you know, all right, we'll listen to you again. And they put up with it pretty well, but mostly I just wanted them to, to be aware of it. Uh, you can't do anything about anything if you're not aware of what's going on in you. So, I mean, one of the, one of the big collaborative skills that we talk about all the time is self-awareness. That if you don't have some level of self-awareness, you're just like a cork bobbing along on the ocean. You know, your, your life might be an interesting journey, but you won't have any sense of, of controlling it or, or uh, what the outcomes are going to be. You're just floating along. So uh, self-awareness is a, a very big deal. Just noticing what you're experiencing in that moment. I'm smiling because I, I remember being a teenager and having having my grandparents and thinking, "Oh goodness me, do we do we have to talk about this again?" And now at this age, in my kind of you know coming towards my mid forties, now I would uh -huh. do I would do anything for an older, wiser mentor in yeah. my life to to talk to and to to hear from and to and to learn from and to compare experiences with, and so. Yeah, I'm just smiling because unfortunately, hindsight is the thing that gives that value. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's a beautiful segue into what we, we're here to talk about here today. Now, you were a judge for 25 years um, and you right. worked predominantly in labor strikes within education institutions. It was, yeah, it was all conflict in employment situations. And, and I, I happen to mediate a lot of, of uh, conflicts simply because we required that uh, before anybody got to a trial, they had to go through a mediation process. And I enjoyed the, the mediation. Uh, I, I enjoyed it probably more than, than the trials and writing decisions. And so, uh, and, and I was fairly good at it. And so I would be requested for that a lot. So I did, I did a fair amount of mediation. 
One of the first questions that struck me when I was when I was thinking about that is, you know, usually when people get to a certain level of mastery with something, when they've been doing it for a really long time, they learn to look for certain things. Like they have certain things on their radar that they're that they're tracking for. And I was talking to a, a marriage counselor actually, and they said the number one thing they learned to look for was contempt. If there was mm-hmm. contempt mm-hmm. present, then, yeah. then this relationship was in a danger zone. What yeah. were the things that you learned to track for, like immediately when you, you sit in that mediation environment? You have to keep in mind that I was working mostly in a labor management environment, which is if you were looking for a situation to put a contempt label on, you probably can't find many more situations that are more contemptuous than, than most labor management relationships. Those relationships, when, they, when they're like that, I mean, they're just completely ineffective. They don't listen to each other. They don't understand each other. So a lot of times I would be putting a lot of energy into trying to get them simply to listen and understand the other party. Like they would come in and I would, I would ask the union, I want to learn about the union's point of view all right, in this situation, but I don't want to learn it from the union. I want management to explain it to me. And so management would try to explain it to me and usually they get it wrong and I'd ask the union to explain it again to management and management would come a little bit closer and we'd have to go back and forth several times. And then I'd say, okay, now I want to learn management's point of view and I want the union to explain it to me. And we'd go through the same process and I wouldn't let them go on to trying to solve the problem until both parties could articulate the the point of view Uh, of the other party to the other party's uh, satisfaction. So just getting that basic understanding would make a huge difference in the relationship and in the effectiveness of the the process. I'm just going to pause right there because I think that there's something so valuable in that in terms of a tool. I mean, my... My business partner and I, we used to have this thing that we would do when we couldn't come to an agreement and it would, we would take each other's side. Okay, you, take, you fight my yeah. side now. Okay, I'll fight your side now. And there's something that happens. You can do it in a relationship. You can do it with employees, with team members. There's something that happens there where you try and fight the other person's point of view or you try and champion the other person's point of view where you are forced to go into almost uh, an empathetic space. I really need to understand what is it about this that you're so attached to, to be able to articulate it back to you. That role swapping is a massively valuable tool that people can use when it comes to collaborating first, before you, as you said, before you get into anything else. Absolutely. And, and one thing that you can do to take it even one step further, which we, we, we have an exercise, we call the three perspectives exercise, where first somebody argues for their own point of view, and then they, they actually, they stand up, switch chairs. You know, then they argue the other, they become the other person arguing from their point of view. That's what you're talking about. But then a third step is we have them put their chairs next to each other and look at the area where they just heard these two point of views. And then they become two neutral third party observers and they discuss what they heard from each party, you know, and what advice would they give to each of those parties from a, from the viewpoint of a neutral third party? Because that's a, a very different point of view as well. That's more of a problem solving, being uh, having a certain amount of detachment. The, f- the first two points of view are gaining that empathy and gaining that understanding about what the other person is thinking. But then if you can step outside of it, you know, it's like uh, being the the observer participant in a, a meeting to be able to 
you know, look down on yourself like you're up on the staircase and, and or in the balcony and, and looking down on yourself and saying, all right, how's Jim, how's Jim doing now? You know, well, I noticed that he's not listening very well or he's getting a little defensive. You know, he's talking a little louder, a little faster. <laughs> but in a sense, <laughs> that's an important skill. In a sense, you're teaching people to become their own mediators. To have the skill yeah. to be to become your own mediator. I mean, can you imagine if we could all? I mean, I know you can. If we could, if yeah. we could all yeah. do that, what it would transform yeah. the the legal world, the the conflict in homes. If we could teach our children to do yeah. that, we've got some great uh, research studies. First one in, in California. In fact, the, the reason that I got into this. The state of California kept seeing, when I was a judge, we kept seeing the same parties coming through our system over and over and over again because they had such adversarial workplaces. They were always fighting uh, compared to others' organizations that were operating in the same environment, drawing from the same labor pool, and they were very effective at collaboration, and we never saw them at all. Now, these, and we call these the, the more adversarial groups, the red zone groups, these red zone groups, they were costing the state of California a huge amount of money, not just in judges' salaries or, or courtrooms, but primarily in lost productivity. So we got a big grant from the Hewlett Foundation, a small group of us. Uh, we did a lot of research, tried to figure out what the difference between these groups are. And then we set out trying to see what we could do to help these groups be more collaborative, more effective, and resolve their conflict better. And that was sort of the origins of the, the radical collaboration program. But one of the key aspects, one of the key skills, we, got, we, come, we come up with five skills. One of the key skills is this, how do you negotiate your way through conflict in a way that builds relationships rather than undermines relationships? Uh, and that's a good part of it, you know, understanding where the other party is coming from, having that empathy, knowing what they're feeling. Uh, from seeing the situation from their point of view before they try and solve problems. Because typically what we do is we rush into a situation, we try to figure out what our favorite solution is, and then we try to convince the other party that our favorite solution is better than their favorite solution. And then either through trade-offs or compromises or the superior strength of one side or the other, you know, we reach some common agreement that we can both live with. But you tend not to get the best solution there. So we try to slow down the process and build that, that process of understanding uh, into their, their uh, conflict resolution and their problem solving before they start looking for solutions. So they put a lot more interest into understanding the other party's situation, understanding the interest of the other party before they try and figure out how to meet those. The word that keeps coming up for me there is around willingness, like both parties have to be willing, right? And that's when we're I'm going to talk about red zone and green zone in a second. But when you're in that fight or flight adversarial yeah. environment, it's hard to find the willingness to hear somebody else out. How do you set up an environment so that both parties come in willing? That's one of the, the real skills. That's one of the five key skills really is how to do that. We call it, we label the, the skill collaborative intention. The skills are both mindsets and skill sets. It's a set of attitudes and a set of competencies that you can learn. But the the mindset one is more this this collaborative intention and is being able to stay focused on mutual gains in your relationships when you hit one of those speed bumps. You know, when somebody makes a, a mistake, uh, something that you don't understand, you know, do you get curious or do you get furious? And so if we can get people to start paying attention to their mindset, that makes a huge difference. 
We had I, – I, I teach in the uh, international management program at the Stockholm School of Economics. And every year they have to do a class project. And several years ago they took on a class project. They, it's about red zone and green zone. The, the two different um, cultures, a collaborative culture or a, a more adversarial or a more passive-aggressive conflict-avoidant culture, which we call the red zone and the pink zone. And what they did was several times, wherever they were, these were all international managers from around the world, wherever they were several times during the day, they had to note down in a little notebook whether they had an adversarial, uh, a, a red zone attitude, or whether they had a more collaborative green zone attitude. That's all they had to do. They didn't have to do anything about it or try and change it. They just had to notice it. And then they, they, you know, did that, you know, four or five times a day. Then they collected all this data over a period of time. And when they analyzed it, they realized that more often than not, at the beginning of the process, more, most of the participants were operating with this adversarial mindset. By the time they got to the end of the process, more often than not, more of the participants were operating in a collaborative mindset and they were behaving differently simply because they were paying attention to what their attitude was. So this is another example about how if you if we can increase the self-awareness about what people's mindset is, just that self-awareness by itself will make a positive impact. You know, then you can do some other things, too, like having people, you know, focus on the long term so the long-term relationship versus just the short-term numbers. and But having that mindset and noticing what your mindset is, is a huge first start. You know, one of the most powerful tools that I ever learned when it came to conflict management started very early on in my business career when I was noticing that that willingness piece, like starting out right, starting out in the right state was the determiner of everything, really. The most powerful tool I learned was to actually state your intent, to yeah. say the words, you know, my intention is, my intention for this interaction, my intention for this interview, my intention for our relationship is this. And how, when you state your intent, it somehow, yep. it's magical, it somehow cuts all the stories that the other party is telling themselves about, you know, worst case scenario stories, they never listen, they don't care, they just yeah. want to do this. When you state your intent and you do it, you know, genuinely, yeah. it just cuts story and it creates this open right. blank chapter to yeah. start with. Yeah. Oh, openness is another one of the skills. <laughs> Creating that sense of psychological safety where people feel free enough to to say, you know, to deal with difficult issues, say what's on their mind, deal with say their own truths and stuff. Uh, and part of that is being clear and open about what your intentions are. Yeah. Now you also need to pay attention to what the other how the, the other parties and uh, other party responds to that of course. And, you know, there's other things you need to be paying attention to. But if you can go in and start a, a discussion about a conflict with the clear intention of meeting as many interests of both parties as you can, you know, yeah, I want to get my interests met, but I want you to get your interests met as well. Because I know that we're not going to have a long-term solution if you don't get your interests met too. So what can we do together to try to make that work? And that's a that's a very different conversation, just right there. Within yeah. five seconds, the whole conversation pivots on an, on an yeah. axis. We've kind of lightly touched on red zone. So red zone is that very yeah. adversarial um, state. And green yeah. zone is the more collaborative, cool-headed state. Funnily enough, actually, I, I, I interviewed somebody who had been inside the All Blacks. I don't know if you've ever heard of the All Blacks, New Zealand rugby team, like the, oh, one of the most. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I know yeah, what you're talking about now. One yeah. of the most successful rugby teams on the planet in all time. 
And they have a very similar philosophy. They have um, blue hat and red hat and they try and avoid, they try and identify when they're wearing the red hat, the adversarial, all adrenaline, testosterone. And when they're wearing the blue hat where they're cool, strategic, on point, collaborating. So it's fascinating what um, synergies there are between those two things. So we talked about red zone and we talked about green zone, but then after the first edition of the book came out, you said that you discovered this whole new zone that you didn't even know existed. We had a lot of participants over the years, especially the last 15 years or so, uh, come to us and they say, well, we, we're, we must be in this collaborative green zone because we don't fight. You know, if there's a problem, I just keep my mouth shut. Uh, and they were mistaking the absence of outright warfare as effective collaboration, which it isn't. It's simply being conflict avoidant. And so we, we started labeling that the pink zone because it's still part of the red zone, but it just looks very different. You know, it's, it's the smiley pretty version. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, if you go into a meeting that's very red zone, people are arguing with each other and yelling at each other and not listening very well and that kind of stuff. If you go into a pink zone meeting, everyone's playing nicey-nicey with each other and they're going, oh, yeah, okay, great, you know. And then when people leave, absolutely nothing happens because everyone's afraid to stand up and say, well, wait a minute, I think this is a bad idea. We shouldn't put time and energy into that. So they just, you know, nod and then walk out of the room and don't do anything. So pink zone cultures, I think, have become the predominant culture today, certainly in our client base. I would say 80 percent of the people that we work with identify their workplace as a pink zone environment, at least the the places where they're working, you know, Um, and that's been a big change when we started looking at the impact that culture plays on an organization. And that's so so fascinating to me because if you think, if, you know, we go into conversations where suddenly adversarial has become wrong, to be aggressive has become wrong. Now, if you don't interject some skills, then what you end up with is pink zone. What you end up with is conflict just going underground. Yeah. So the feelings are still there. No one has the skills with which to deal with them. And so we all go, we all go pink. We all go passive aggressive or, or yeah. in denial or the other one where, you know, we're too evolved for conflict. So we just separate yeah. and go our separate ways. Let's let's get into that. What are the skills? Like, what are some of the skills that once you've identified that you're in a red zone, that you need to inject yeah. in in order to move not to pink but to green? I think oftentimes people are in both the red zone and the pink zone because they simply haven't been taught the effective skills. They don't know how to deal with conflicts in a way that's that's effective. You know, people in the pink zone, uh, oftentimes uh, it's very fear based. In fact, I would say almost always it's fear based. Um, They haven't they haven't been taught about how to stand up and set clear boundaries for themselves. Uh, So they're unwilling to take a stand. Oftentimes people in the red zone, uh, they try and overpower the others. It's also fear based, but it's more, you know, uh, winning at, at all costs to hide your your fear, and they don't have the listening skills. They don't have the problem solving skills because they're so concerned about beating the other side. You know, they define winning as as beating the other side rather than getting their interest met. So, if we can give them some basic skills, you know, and, and these we're not talking rocket science here. We're talking about some basic practical skills, listening skills, uh, negotiating tools, uh, being more self accountable. You know, noticing. What choices you have. A lot of times people in organizations feel powerless. And so if we can get them to examine their own mindset about what choices are available to them, you know, oftentimes people say, well, I had no, I had no choice. You know, well, yeah, 
you can stay in a bad marriage. You know, you can stay at a, uh, at a bad job. And sometimes that makes very good sense. You know, like right now, I would say it's not a good time to go out looking for a new job. If you've got a job, you know, and you can work at home and you can stay alive and you can get paid, it's it's probably a pretty good time to be conservative <laughs> about that. A lot of times people don't recognize that they have a choice. And so if we can get people to change their mindset about how much choice they have, just, just uh, examine maybe what would happen if I did have more choice. They'd be, they see a whole range of other actions that they can take. Uh, so, you know, the things like that, uh, we can help people, uh, communicate better, uh, help them say more what's on their mind, uh, help them talk about what their underlying interests are, help them listen better, try to increase their self-awareness, uh, about when they get defensive. What's the number one practical tool that if somebody was going to go, right, I'm going to go out tomorrow and learn to be more radically collaborative. What, what's one tool that yeah. they can practice? The single most important thing that you can do, I think, more than anything else that I've seen in, the, in working with organizations and people in the past 55 years of trying to help people resolve conflict, there, I don't think there is any single thing that will do more good than being able to better manage your own defensiveness. Because when people get defensive, it's like throwing blood and water to a shark. It just creates a feeding frenzy. And not only are we terribly, uh, you know, we're just terrible problem solvers. Our IQ drops. We can't figure things out. And we invite everybody else in the room to get defensive. And then what you end up with is a whole room filled with red zone or pink zone people who can't solve a problem because they're so defensive. Uh, and it's just a, a terrible situation to have. So I think that I've seen more leaders derailed, more people in leadership roles derailed by getting defensive than any other single thing that undermines them. So what we try to do is help people get a better sense of what defensiveness is about, um, have them see uh, better when they're getting defensive, increase their awareness about their own defensiveness so they can spot it at an earlier point in the process, then come up with an action plan that helps them deal more effectively with their own defensiveness. So if we can do that, that can, that can be transformative because then you can have people sitting in a room without getting defensive, doing a better job of listening, not having this IQ drop, and turning into, you know, a, a stupid problem solver, not getting the other people defensive. Uh, and if they can sit there and say, well, okay, yeah, mm, I, I can understand. Now, I have a very different perspective than you do, but I do understand your perspective. And let me see if, let me check that out without saying, oh, no, 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 you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You can't possibly believe in that, you know? Let's break that down for a second. Okay. So let's start with 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 why we get defensive and what is it. You had yeah. said, which I loved, you said defensiveness does not protect us from others. It defends yeah. us from fears we don't want to feel. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, <laughs> when you're thinking back to past conflicts and, you know, obviously we've just come out of lockdown, so there's been a few. And you're thinking about past conflicts and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, yeah. Yeah, that feels that feels really true. So what are what are these fears we don't want to feel? See, most people think that we're getting defensive because somebody has done something to us. But usually what we're doing is we're defending ourselves from ourselves. Let, let me give you an example. Say I have some fears 
about my competency for doing this podcast today. You know, maybe I've been, uh, you know, sick for a while or, or uh, not paying attention, you know, where I'm in Coronaville and, and uh, I, I just worry that you know, I don't know what I'm going to be talking about here. Uh, now, instead of me dealing more effectively with my own fears about my own competency, one of the ways that I could reduce the amount of tension I'm feeling, because when I start feeling incompetent, that causes a lot of distress for me because I don't like feeling incompetent. So I don't want to do that. So one of the ways that I could lessen that feeling, that fear about my own competency is I might start blaming you. You know, you should have given me more time to prepare. You didn't send me the questions ahead of time. Uh, you know, how you're not giving me enough time. You know, how how in the world is I, am I supposed to do a good job here? You know, it might seem like I'm defending myself from another person, from you or the situation. You know, but what I'm really doing is I'm behaving in a way that lets me not be aware of that fear about my own competency. So if you're going to get better at dealing with your own defensiveness and your own fears, you got to let yourself feel those fears. And that's a, you know, that can be a scary situation. But uh, what we try to do is we, we get with people at a time, preferably when they're not feeling defensive, and we have them look at what their behaviors are. Because the problem with when we get defensive is I'm becoming fearful, all of this, and, but I, I don't recognize it because it's all unconscious stuff. So I don't even recognize, I, I feel like I'm behaving appropriately in the, in the circumstances, all right? Until later on when I look back on it and realize, wow, you know, I was behaving not very well then or, you know, I didn't do a very good job there, that kind of stuff. So what we try to do is help people be more aware of what their actual behaviors are because those behaviors are easier to spot than the underlying fear. Most of us are, are pretty unconscious about these fears because it's, that's the whole point of a defense system is to help you not be aware of that fear. So if I notice that, that when I'm starting to get defensive over you know, my, my past, when I look at times when I've been defensive and I notice that when I start getting defensive, hmm, I start talking faster and louder. You know, I, my breathing changes, you know, I start feeling very misunderstood. Well, then if I'm in a situation and say I'm getting some feedback about something and I notice I'm talking louder and faster and my breathing is faster and I, I'm feeling, you know, kind of put upon. If I know that those are my early warning system, my early warning signs of defensiveness, the alarm bells can go off, you know, ding, ding, ding. Hey, Jim, pay attention to that. So we put together a list of about 50 different signs of defensiveness. And there are things like high charge of energy in the body, a sudden drop in IQ, you know, we just get stupid, uh, flooding with information to prove a point, teaching or preaching, withdrawal into deadly silence, uh, blaming or shaming others, being too nice, the opposite, magnifying everything or minimizing everything or holding a grudge or trivializing with humor. You know, there's there's a whole list of them here, and, and it's that's in one of those handouts that I sent you. So we can send that out to people if uh, if we'll they make, want that. We'll make that available. But what, yeah, but what we have them do is we have them go through and we try to pick out what is the behavior that you engage in when you start getting defensive, and then you need to be on the lookout for that because it won't do you any good. It won't act as an early warning system uh, if you're not paying attention to it. So then once you spot it, if you spot yourself doing that, then there are some things that you can do to try to deal more effectively with it. Uh, so 
one of the things you can do then is acknowledge to yourself that you're getting defensive. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm talking louder and faster. Okay, I must be defensive here. Uh, I'll better pay attention to what's going on here. You know, you, you can't deal with your defensiveness if you ignore it. So acknowledging to yourself that you get defensive is the first step. Now, that may not seem like it's a big deal, but it is a huge step. So noticing it, and I always encourage parties that if they feel safe enough, you won't always feel safe enough to do this. But if you do feel safe enough to acknowledge it, not only to yourself, but tell the other person what's going on. I was just because thinking, I was just thinking that I was just thinking yeah. how powerful it would be if you could not only have the awareness, but actually state it at that point, feel safe enough to state it. Like I feel like this other, is derailing. Yeah, because other people spot your defensiveness usually earlier than we can. They don't know what's going on. They just know you're being a little weird about something, you know. So if you can say, wow, you know, that last what you just said there, that triggers me a little bit. And I'm and I'm getting kind of defensive about that. If you can have people in a meeting have that sense of safety and that sense of awareness, it can transform a meeting to say, wait a minute, can we take a time out for a minute here? You know, I've just had a sudden drop in IQ. So one of the things that we do if we're working with a team is we try, we have each person go through and pick their top three signs of defensiveness. And then they share that among all their friends, you know, and usually they have a lot of fun doing that because they're kind of funny, different behaviors, you know, it, it makes it uh, less serious. Uh, it's still very important, but it's easier to talk about, you know. So if they can acknowledge it to themselves, then they acknowledge it to other people. That's important. Then another step is to slow down their, their physiology and try to reengage their whole brain. A lot of times when we start getting defensive, we have tunnel vision. And it's like we're looking through this small you know, telescope here. And part of our brain shuts down. So if you can try to reactivate your brain, do things like – uh, noticing, uh, you know, your feet on the floor and noticing your sits bone in the chair, or, you know, your arms on the side of the chair. How many colors in the room can I see? You know, how many noises can I hear? All that does in a very uh, quick way is to reactivate your brain. So you, you get your brain charged up again. Then what you can do is try to focus inward. That's focusing outward, you know, to get the brain going. Focusing inward to try to understand the fear. Because defenses are always fear-based. And if you can name it, you can tame it. So uh, no, just notice, you know, a part of me is feeling like I'm worried about my competency right in the moment. You know, like I don't know what I'm doing here. A part of me, you know, it makes it easier when you say, yeah, a part of me. Because I don't want to define myself that way. But, yeah, some of me is feeling a little insecure right now, you know, or I'm not feeling very important in this relationship right now. So you notice that. That's trying to understand the fear. Mm -hmm. Then it's also helpful to start noticing what your self-talk is. You know, uh, self-talk is probably the most accurate portrayal of what we're really thinking and feeling because we don't censor it because we're not going to share it with anybody. You know, it's just a little voice in our head. So if you're going into a meeting and you hear the little voice saying, uh, you know, you don't know what you're doing, Jim, uh, you're going to screw this up. You know, you probably, they'll probably never hire you again. You'll get, you'll never do another speech in, in Australia or wherever it is, you know? <laughs> uh, so if you can, when you hear that, if you can turn it into something a little less toxic, 
You know, you don't have to convince yourself that you're Superman and you can fly, but just make it less poisonous. You know, it's like, yeah, this is only a 30 minute meeting. I've done it before. I can do it again. It is, you know, I'm feeling some anxiety, but all right, let's go and do it. You know, uh, at that point, what we try to do is we try to give people an action plan that they can engage in. Once they notice they're getting defensive, they acknowledge it, they slow themselves down, they re-engage their brain, they look for the fear, you know, then what action can you take? And that's going to depend a lot on the signs that you come up with, you know. For example, if you, if your sign of defensiveness is flooding with information to prove a point, maybe your action plan is simply to be quiet for a while. Now, that's not going to help you if your sign is withdrawal into deadly silence. You know, then then you want to uh, speak up, uh, have a sentence and say something to stay engaged in the conversation. If it's high energy uh, charge in the body, you know, maybe take three deep breaths or do some meditative thing. If it's all or nothing thinking, uh, you know, try to see a sign flash through your in front of your eyes, like in Times Square. You know, look for the gray, a little reminder. It doesn't have to be all or nothing or black and white, you know. Uh, one of our participants at a NASA workshop, uh, her sign was always wanting the last word. And so she she had an image of herself standing at the conference room door, throwing in the last word and then slamming the door to remind her, you know, and, it was, and she I think she even put it like a clown nose on her face and some clown no, clown shoes on in the image that it, she had to lighten up her mood a little bit and remind her what she was doing. I would say the best thing you can do after that, you, you implement your action plan. And then let it go and move on. It's never in your best interest to keep beating yourself up for it. You know, you take some action, try to correct the damage, and then move on. You know, if you, if you can do that over time, that's like first aid. You know, it's like to stop the arterial bleeding. But if you can do that over time, that'll make a difference. I just I want to talk to you about the, the resetting part of that. Because that's the yeah. part that just personally I find the hardest. And it was actually, it was interesting. Just, I think it was yesterday, I had an occasion to to try and put this stuff into action. I don't know that I did it very well. But <laughs> I, my, and it was in a personal relationship. It was with my husband. And we we hadn't been on a date for, for a long time. And we went on this date and I was, you know, I was looking forward to it. It was going to be amazing. And as per usual in those situations when you, you haven't spent a lot of time together, you have a fight. It's like, the, it's like the, the first thing that happens, you have a fight. And I was going, okay, well, I'll just, I'll notice what happens when my eyes start to get very glary, my arms cross, um, certain self-talk starts, starts coming in. So I'm noticing, I'm noticing, I'm noticing, and I, I can feel myself getting more defensive. And then what happened was he said, he said, I can see that you're getting really emotional. I think we should stop this conversation. And that just exploded the whole thing. Like I was, I was so close to, to, yeah. to resetting yeah. myself. And we talked about it afterwards and, and, you know, we talked about what could have been different and how it could have been handled differently. But it just, it really brought home to me how important language is when it comes to resetting, yeah. either re <laughs> noticing somebody else or noticing yourself. How do you, what is the language to reset a conversation when you start to see this kicking in? Yeah, yeah, it's funny because one of the other handouts that I sent to you is how to deal with somebody in the red zone. Number one thing is what not to do. <laughs> number one not thing to not to do is try to point out to the other person that they're getting defensive. <laughs> and actually, <laughs> when we them. when we broke that down, and he was saying, yeah. you know, "What happened there?" He was like, "I was trying to yeah. diffuse." He said, "I just wanted us to move on," and you were escalating. Yeah. You just kept escalating. He's like, "What happened?" And I said, "You know, what happened for me was, you know." 
disconnection happened. Yeah. I was getting frustrated because I was feeling disconnected and then you shut the conversation down and the disconnection just got even larger. What would have yeah. worked better for me if you really want to diffuse is to use some reconnection language, like to, to try reconnecting as opposed to you're too hard, don't want to talk about this anymore, you know, let's talk about something else. Yeah. If he had said, wow, there's nothing wrong with saying, with noticing that you're getting triggered. You know, I can, I can see that you're struggling with this. This is having an impact on you. Okay. Can you tell me what that's about? Because I really want to understand this. Curiosity. You know, you know, help me better understand what you're feeling right now. Because obviously it's, you know, this is, something's going on and I, and I don't want that and you don't want that. So let's, you know, can we explore that a little bit? Is that okay? That probably would have made a big difference. You know? So the, when, when we say the number one thing is what not to do, you know, don't point out to the other person. The number two thing is the thing that will be most helpful for you is don't get triggered yourself. You stay in the green zone. You will always be more effective dealing with somebody in the red zone or the pink zone, you know. So he was probably getting a little triggered by himself, you know, and saying, well, listen, you're not, you know, you're not handling this very well. You're getting upset, <laughs> you know, if he had if he had gone for the understanding you know, getting curious, you know, help me understand what that's about. It, that might have, have uh, made a difference. But it also brings me on to the next point that you talk about, which I think is, is immensely powerful, which is practice. You know, afterwards, yeah. the morning afterwards, we were talking about, okay, how could that have been different? What would have worked? Um, okay, well, let's practice that next time. Let's, yeah. let's try and practice doing it this way next time when this comes up and emotions get high. Let's, let's try this tool. And I don't think you can under, overestimate practice. I actually, I was reading something, I think it was about Martin Luther King. And during, during the, the protests and, and the peace, they were so committed to peaceful protesting that he would get the people who were about to protest into a village hall and he would have them simulate being swore at, spat at, hit, pushed around. And he would simulate it over and over and over again with the intention of you need to find a way through whatever's coming up for you right now if this is yeah. going to stay peaceful. And just the commitment to staying mm -hmm. in the green zone requires practice. Yeah. Yeah. How do we how do we do that? Do we wait for these situations to occur? Do we sit down and go, right, these this is the this is the game plan for how we're going to interact. And if this happens, this is what I want us to try and do. Yeah, I think it's helpful to talk about it ahead of time. I mean, listening is the key, having, having that, being able to keep that green zone attitude. And if you, if either of you get triggered and go into the red zone, what do you, you know, what's, what's going to be your plan? You need to have a plan. It's like, all right, maybe somebody could say, you know, can we, can we do what we agreed was plan B, you know, can we do that where we each try to say what we're hearing from the other person or we each talk about uh, what's triggering us in that moment or we each, you know, whatever, whatever it might be that it's helpful, but it's a way of keeping that the, the conversation about the consciousness. So what we tell everyone to do is you need to practice a couple things. One, you need to practice being on the lookout for your signs of defensiveness. Because that's your early warning system. You have to know that, you know, when you get defensive, maybe you shut down. I don't want to talk about it, you know. Uh, anytime you have that feeling, what does that feel like in your body? What's this, what are the words going through your head at that point? You know, you talked about your eyes sort of glaze over. What's that feel like? You know, does that change your vision? So you be on the lookout for that. Just, you know, be, have a sharp lookout for that. Um, and then the second thing is you practice your response. It's like, all right, so I'm noticing that I'm getting defensive right now. So remember we had talked earlier about when we get defensive, 
we're going to take a five minute break and then we're going to talk about or we're going to do this plan or that plan or whatever it is that you find helpful in that situation. But it's being it's being very deliberate and you and you can't do it deliberately if you don't practice it a lot. So we say, you know, it's what you want it to be is you see this behavior, you take this action, see it, do it, see it, do it, see it, do it over and over again. Uh, and over time, that'll make a difference. Th- uh, that's like the first aid part of it, though, you know, because if you really want to deal with it in the long term, you really need to dig down and get into whatever that fear is. Because if you if you don't try and tap into that underlying fear, you won't you won't deal with it effectively. You know, it'll, you'll just it's like putting whipped cream on dog poop. You know, you, you cover it up and it may look a little bit better, but it doesn't deal with the underlying issue. So that, you, that's a that's you, a visual I have not had cause to have. The moment. <laughs> well, it's it's one that people usually remember. So, <laughs> but let's let's talk about those fears. We've got you know we've talked about competence. One of our major fears is yeah. that we are somehow incompetent either in this conversation, in our roles, in our ability to contribute. And you've said that there are two others main ones. Yeah. One is significance, yeah. the other one is likability. Three, yeah. The, the, these, this whole being significant, competent, and likable, that fears about that, uh, fears of being ignored, you know, not, not important, not significant, uh, fears of, of being humiliated, you know, not competent, not knowing what you're doing with or, or help, not doing, uh, feeling helpless, you know, and then uh, feeling rejected, uh, not being liked, you know. Those are so typically push people into this red zone or pink zone or or get them defensive over and over again. Now, those aren't the only fears around, but boy, we see those coming up all the time, all the time. And they're, you know, they're tied into uh, with certain rigid behaviors, too. Um, if we have fears about our, our uh, likability, that can impact how open we are. You know, some people will keep everything close to the vest and they don't want to share anything. Other people will share too much, you know, trying to win friends or whatever, you know. If we um, uh, have fears about our competency, we might try to take control over a situation when it's not appropriate. Or we might do exactly the opposite. Maybe we refuse to take responsibility for anything. Uh, Significance. You know, I, I might want to build up who I am or I might want to pretend I'm nobody. You know, it, it can cause rigid behavior those, in a number of different uh, ways. Have you ever read the book The Courage to be Disliked? Oh, I've heard of it. I, I haven't read it. I love the title. Mm, if, if anyone wants to dig further into those fears and, and awareness and, and taking almost yeah. radical responsibility for, for the fears that you feel, that book is is an incredible, incredible resource yeah. to go to. Another thing that you've kind of got me thinking at the moment, as well as the importance of just being able to put our finger on exactly what do I fear here? Because if you go in fearless, you are you are almost bulletproof. You know, you're like water. You can move with anything because you're, you're not experiencing that rigid block. Mm-hmm. The other thing, going back to the game plan, something that, that we used to do in the business, and again, it was a it was a hard one decision from from falling on our bums a number of different times, <laughs> as most decisions are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, learn, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Give me a, give me a decade of getting it wrong, and eventually, eventually, I will figure it out. <laughs> um, we ended up putting together a code of conduct, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but we, but every single supplier that we dealt with, every single employee that came on board, and it was a talent management agency that I owned, every single. Um, a, member of the talent 
had to yeah. sign this code of conduct. And it was very simple. It was just five points. And two of those points that were the most significant, you know, talking about having having a plan, one was we use supportive language and behavior. Mm-hmm. And the other one was we always assume positive intent. And those two agreements got me, I say out of, got me around, helped me navigate True, more yeah. disputes than I can count because you can start the conversation by going, you know, you remember that agreement that we made at the beginning. We both wanted to come into a conversation or to come into a relationship where supportive language and behavior was used and where we always assume positive intent from each other. Yeah. And it just set the basis for all things. What makes it so powerful is that uh, the everybody was a part of it. You know, it's like we, we've done similar things uh, with teams where we'll, we'll have negotiating teams. When they get into the negotiations, you know, we'll have relationship rules and we'll put them up on the wall. And everybody agrees to it, same, exactly the same thing. And then when they're in the middle of the meeting and somebody starts getting heated, you know, somebody else can just point a, a finger over there at the at the rules and they go, okay, all right, I'm time out for a minute, you know. And and it it really helps to be open and, and direct about that. Say this is the way we want it to be. You know? And we and we're human beings, so it's not always going to be that way, but this is what we're aiming for. And so it to keep reminding us is of of what that is is a very helpful tool. And wouldn't it be wouldn't it be such a fundamental shift if somehow, some way, as a nation, if we could do it as a nation, we could potentially even do it as a planet, we could agree upon those things? Yeah. This is how, as a community, we listen to each other. This is how, as a community, we deal with things when they don't go well. This is how, as a community, almost like a, a constitution of, yeah. of our agreed behavior, the way that we well, want to be treated yeah. and the way that we want to treat this is one of the reasons why the United States is struggling so much right now. I mean, we we do not have that in our politics. Uh, it is a, a political environment where uh, you're trying to score points and insult the other person and, and make them look bad and uh, speak to your base rather than build relationships. It's go out of your way to destroy relationships so you earn points from your base. Uh, and it's a terribly destructive way, and I think it's it's probably caused more damage to the reputation of the United States around the world than anything that I've seen in my lifetime. And it doesn't help when all of us, not just the United States, but, you know, I'm British, I live in Australia, I spend a lot of time in the USA, yeah. and all of our political institutions, our political structures are built upon a language of opposition. You know, it's yeah. literally... How how do you expect to collaborate when you literally call the people you're supposed to be collaborating with the opposition? You know, it's it's wired in from the very beginning. It almost feels like it would take a complete relanguaging yeah. to make that any different. Well, in, in the U.S., uh, I, in, let me give you an example in California. Uh, we had two senators uh, for a while. Uh, Barbara Boxer was one. She was like an attack dog. And Dianne Feinstein, she was one. And she was collaborative. And she would work across the aisle, you know, and she would talk and she would listen. Now, they both had their roles to play. But guess who got more of the legislation passed? It was Dianne Feinstein because she would listen to the other the other senators across the aisle and they could work together. You know, where Barbara Boxer, her job was to, you know, rally the troops and and be this red zone attack dog. She got nothing done, but still people voted for her because they liked that. And they felt good about it, you know, but it didn't accomplish anything. So 
what what I fear about now is that we don't have too many people that are willing to work across the aisle. Mm-hmm. I think that may change if uh, we get a different president, that there may be more cover for people to do that. But right now, if you're a Republican and you want to work with a Democrat, you know, you, you're putting yourself at political risk. And how primal, just thinking how primal that is. I mean, you go back to Roman times and, you know, our need to go to the games, to see man versus lion, to watch the gladiators, to see almost bloodshed, to see our frustrations taken out, you know, taken on by somebody else into a battle. There's something Mm -hmm. so primarily satisfying about that. You know, it it rarely accomplishes anything, but it's very emotionally satisfying. And until we as a community can somehow identify the fact that that feels good, but it doesn't get me or my family or my community where we need to go, yeah. that's when I think something, you know, something will shift. The, the red zone, it, when you're in the red zone, it gives you the illusion of power. And that's why it's so difficult to talk somebody out of the red zone. Because when you're activated like that, it feels powerful. Now, it really is an illusion. Um, and if you look at the, you know, we've all seen the pictures of the Aikido master in the middle of the room taking on 35 different warriors, you know. That master can only do that if they stay centered, if they stay in that green zone themselves and not get, you know, fearful about uh, or, or angry uh, towards the other ones. If they if they do that, they're lost. Mm-hmm. And don't they say that the, the, the fundamental principle of martial I don't know a lot about martial arts, but my husband, my husband does. And the fundamental principle is to respect, to yeah. respect the person that you are entering into an engagement with above mm-hmm. and beyond anything else. And that's the same There's, as collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it, you know, it, it, it takes some other skills too. You know, you need to be willing to set clear boundaries and you need to be able to solve problems and, you know, you need to be aware and all, all those kinds of things too. But boy, that's, that goes to the heart of it. It really does. If we had a little more respect going on these days, uh, that, that would change the nature of what's happening in the world right now. And to respect in conflict as well as and in especially in conflict. This is this is easy to do when you're not in conflict. <laughs> you know, I discovered that, as sit, I said, <laughs> you and your husband sit down and you talk about it. You can have this wonderful conversation, you know, you know? but when you get into that, that activated zone, it's much more difficult. So sometimes people can't do that in the moment, you know, can't go through and acknowledge it and look for their early warning signs and practice their action step. So what we encourage them to do then is like a little after action review. You know, it's like you and your husband had the conversation afterwards, which is a good way of, of doing that. But we recommend that people go through the same process, visualize it, get back, think of what it felt like to be activated like that. Igno- see yourself acknowledging that you have that feeling. Look for that fear. Reactivate your brain. Just go through the whole process again as though it's real in the moment. And even though it's not real in the moment, what you're doing is you're creating new neural pathways that will make it easier for you to do it next time. Mm -hmm. So even if you can't do it in the moment, come back and do it afterwards and it's going to be a helpful exercise for you. Another interview, I learned so much doing doing this podcast. I mean, it it is one of my greatest, greatest teachers. And I was interviewing a a meditation master and also he's a neurolinguistic expert master. And he was talking about the science that backs up the art of visualization now. 
And those that visualize it can literally emotionally connect into the experience within their mind. Their skills increase. I can't remember if it's at the same rate, but it's a definite comparable rate than those mm-hmm. who physically go out and practice. Like it's an incredible tool to yeah. tap into. Yeah. I just I just want to go into one extra area with you. And it's one of the things I find the most amazing about your work from a ripple effect standpoint. Um, you know, you, you've been wildly successful in teaching people how to, you know, step out of red zone into green zone, avoid the pink zone. I think it was like 70%. You, you reduce measurable conflict in a hundred organizations by, by over 70%, which is incredible. Yeah. But the thing that struck me more was that you said you have saved thousands who have been trapped in the red zone experience, provided yeah. role models for school children, because you're primarily working with teachers as they could then, as the people involved could then teach the children how to resolve their differences without destroying their community. Yeah. And that just hit me that the witnessing of this, I mean, you've said that red zone spreads, it can be like a virus, excuse the term. Mm-hmm. You know, we see people in red zone, we start to emulate, but the witnessing of people who have the tools to collaborate at a different level, despite conflict, despite differences, that yeah. also spreads onto Absolutely. our children and the people that work with us. And and I know you're doing a lot of work right now with radical collaboration with children. Yeah. How does it differ? It's, How do the skills differ? Are they just the same because we're all essentially big kids at heart? Well, I, working with ki- – I mean I've worked with, with a lot of college kids and, and high school kids uh, over the years. I, I'm, I'm trying to work with much younger kids right now. I'm, I'm writing – um, trying to write a, a radical a book based on radical collaboration for the next generation. You know, I, I find um, <laughs> I find I'm not nearly as articulate <laughs> as I would like to be because I have too many words. I want to be too precise. I have to fight that. You know, to get some basic. If you can get kids to recognize, all right, we're different. That's not good. That's not bad. We're different. You know, there's there's a little simple little concept. Well, you know, I have 30, 40 pages in the book about that. <laughs> and so um, I'm I'm having to um, narrow things down a little, simplify things a great deal. Uh, but I think that there's still it's still going to be powerful. There's a, there's a cartoon. I don't know how young your grandchildren are, but there's a cartoon in our house that we watch. It's called Daniel Tiger. And Daniel Tiger has this song and my daughter has now started singing it and I won't sing it, but it goes, (laughs) if you're feeling like you're going to roar, take a deep breath and count to four. One, two, three, four. And the simplicity of that and what what simplicity enables is it, it enables repetition. It means that we can repeat it to ourselves and we can repeat it to other people. And so I hear her singing that song to my son. If he's getting yeah. irate, she starts to sing it to him. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of, of doing work with children, right? It forces us to yeah. simplify our thinking down to a level that anybody can access yeah. in any state. And, and, you know, most of the adults that I've worked with all my life, um, they've simply never been taught these skills. We, we don't have a class on on collaborative relationships. Oh, no one, shouldn't we? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, I, I'm excited because in a number of university programs now, I, I taught in the the talent development program at Harvard and and some MBA programs in in Latin America as well, and uh, at the University of California, in a number of university programs. Um, 
where we're teaching the, the collaboration skills to people. And it can make such a transformation in a very short period of time. But what we found that at least in, in California, uh, in the school districts, there are such tight restrictions on what they have to teach and how many minutes they have that there's not a lot of free time where they can just jump in and do something else, you know. So it has to typically come through some different some different venue, you know, like maybe when uh, some some people have been successful at getting the, the schools to do uh, a welcoming camp before they go off to, you know, junior high or something like that, you know, where they have them for a couple of days and they can work with them, things like that. But um, it was never a money issue. It was always a time issue. Which is, which is ironic because if you think about the number one skill in life, and I've said this before on the podcast, the number one skill in life that's going to lead you to have a successful, fulfilling, wholehearted life, it's your ability to be able to find, listen to another human being, find a solution that works for both parties, that gets you both ahead, and, and to be able to keep that relationship intact. I mean, if you look at simple things like we've got, we've obviously covered relationships, but even asking for a pay rise, going for a job, um, starting a new business, negotiating with staff, labor disputes, um, pitching, even if you're in venture capital, pitching. That's, it's, it's a fancy way of saying the same thing. Everything that we've talked about in, in the book and the, the workshops we do and the trainings that we do, um, now we have more, mostly a business orientation because that's who hires us. But every one of those skills works exactly as well if you're talking about your interpersonal relationships. You know, dealing with your kids, dealing with your parents or your neighbor, you know, or your spouse or whatever. You know, so these are universal skills that are important if people are going to have a quality life. I just want to quickly pivot onto another question, and I want to make this very tools heavy because I feel like it's one thing to know that we shouldn't be defensive. It's one thing to know we shouldn't be in the red zone. It's another thing to have easy to go to tools, right? And and the languaging. There was this beautiful question that that I've heard that you ask, and I think you ask it specifically of children, which is interesting. And it is, what do you say to each other when you get angry? (laughs) And I, I love that question because we all kind of kind of go back to the same narrative, right, in our relationships. Yeah. Whether this is what I say about you in my head while you're talking, and it's always the same thing when I'm defensive, <laughs> or this is what I actually say to you and this is what you actually say to me. You know, we have the same narratives that come up and up again. And if you can sit with somebody else and go, you know, this is what we say to each other when we get angry. How yeah. do we stop it getting there? This is the language yeah. that we use. I don't want that. Do you want that? What do you take? Like once you've asked children that question, where do you take them from there? Well, the next question is, why did you do that? Not what caused it, but what were you hoping to accomplish by that? And if you get them talking about that, well, I was angry. Well, yeah, you were angry. And what did you think that would accomplish by calling this friend, your friend, your good friend, an idiot? Well, you know, I'd feel better. Well, how could you? How could you get the same point across without insulting your friend and telling them how you're feeling, that you're, you're angry or upset, you know, but thinking about what's the, the implications for what their behavior is. So th- they, need, they, need to, uh, they need to be more aware of the consequences of what they're actually doing. 
And it doesn't, it's like I said, this is not rocket science. If you can just get them to have some basic understanding, it makes a big difference. Or you're wiring for awareness. Yeah. From a very exactly. early age. I mean, we have to exactly. rewire. It's our job to rewire, which is a, a much harder task. But to wire from yeah. the beginning, you know, that's yeah. when they're like sponges. That's huge. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna close up with with the question that I usually close on, and I call it the one thing experiment because I find that usually we have the capacity with everything that's going on in our lives, and especially right now, to implement one thing, to remember and implement one thing from the information that we hear. So mm -hmm. if I could, if I put you on a stage, I gave you a microphone and in front of you, I could put every single person that you would wish to influence. What's mm -hmm. the one thing that you would want them to know? Well, it would have to do with their defensiveness. If they can, if they can tap in, increase their self-awareness about their own defensiveness, that would make a huge difference in the quality of their lives. It's as simple as that. When our, when our awareness goes up, our defensiveness goes down. And we become so much better at doing everything. Our relationships are better. Our problem solving is better. Uh, it's just our, our life is, is going to be uh, very different on a different trajectory uh, if we can deal more effectively with that defensiveness. Jim, thank you so much for your time. Oh, this has been a lot of fun for me. I love talking about this stuff, so. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.